0: Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, an open SSL flaw for you to know about, cybersecurity firm Norse implodes, and the Windows hot potato flaw that's been around for over a decade, plus a whole bunch of your questions, our answers, a rockin' roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi everyone and welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly Systems Network and Administration podcast. We stream this episode live on February 4th, 2016. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting and ix systems i'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on our live stream why that's powered by the incredible scale engine over at scaleengine.com you should go check that out my name is chris and joining us every single week is our host the admin the tech and the teacher why yes it's mr alan jude hey there alan hey chris everybody thanks for watching hello alan i'm like super pumped up this week for today's episode because Mm -hmm. of two reasons number one i'm just looking at the doc eight pages long That is a ridiculous show, Doc, Alan. Yeah. Eight pages long worth of notes for today's episode. Huge show. So first of all, that's awesome. Plus, you just got back from a trip, uh, which I haven't heard how it went. So where'd you go, and how long have you been back, and how did it go? All those in one.
1: Right. So uh, I was at FOSDEM, the uh, Free Open Source Software um, Developers European Meeting. Yeah. uh, Which is basically a giant conference. Like you said, scale is pretty big, right? Mm Mm-hmm. It's more than double that size. Really? Yeah, there I wanted. I wish I could 5, go. Five thousand developers. Wow.
0: Yeah, and you know, I yeah. saw some uh, announcements come out of there, which look pretty yep. cool.
1: Uh, the other interesting things about Fosdem is there's no registration at all. Like, oh, that's it's nice. Completely free, but they don't up. even they don't even want a list of the people that showed up. Partly, I think, because fire code says they're not actually allowed to put that many people in the building. <laughs> <laughs> but basically, you know, you could just show up and and hang out and do whatever, right? uh part of it is you know there's um some people take the free software thing to the extreme of you know I Privacy. don't want any, the private yeah. I don't yeah. want anybody to know that I was there and so on. You enjoyed it? Uh yes, I enjoyed it quite well. Um I missed most of the stuff on the Saturday, the first day of the conference, um because we decided at the last minute to do it. Uh we uh people's flights and so on were already set, so the FreeBSD Developer Summit was on the Saturday instead of the Friday before the conference, and so it overlapped, uh, which mm. had, in addition to you know me missing most of the stuff that happened on Saturday, mm. it also meant that uh, for the FreeBSD Dev Summit that a bunch of people had to only show up for the morning or only the afternoon in order to do uh, something they had to do at FOSDEM or you know see another talk or meet with certain people or give a talk or whatever, uh, so. We'll do it better next year, but... So
0: it sounds like uh, Fosdom's a good one to go to. I think Scale's yes. a good one to go to as well. They're both mm-hmm. really great events, so...
1: Yeah, <laughs> uh, they both happen to be very close to each other every yeah, year. No kidding. slightly difficult. You're telling me. Uh, yeah. You know, fly three time zones that way, go to Scale, fly home for a couple days, yep. or at one point I swear it looked like I would have to, I would be home for like one day in between, uh, and then fly to uh, oh, man. six, five or six time zones the opposite direction. I want to talk about jet lag. Yeah.
0: Jesus. Yeah, and then, all of it still, and then all of it just makes me exhausted, and the Linux Fest is in April, which is just around the corner now. So now we're starting to plan on that one. But well, I'm
1: really sad that I will miss that.
0: I know. So are we. We're
1: majorly bummed. I, yeah, know. I know. You got stuff going on? That's how it yeah, goes. I will be in Germany doing uh, the FreeBSD Hackathon followed yeah. by the Open Source Data Center Conference. You
0: know, the real bummer is, the big bummer is it means we'll miss our annual in-studio episode. That'll be the... Well... The, the
1: anniversary best. happens actually because of the numbers slide a little bit. It means the anniversary will be basically a while after or something. I yeah. don't know. Uh, it turns <clears> out that it it might be possible to still have an anniversary episode. Hmm. It would just be That'd be fun. You know, un, outside of the craziness that is so Yeah. Uh, Fest and
0: cons and all that. Yeah.
1: Yes. Yeah. Cool. You know, there's definitely something to look forward to? to. Uh having them happen at the same time. And it's too bad that the schedule didn't work out this year.
0: Yeah, so uh, we so f- we'd haven't missed a beat, even though we were yes. both uh, of us were traveling for the last few weeks. We had a feedback uh, special last week, which I hope people liked. That was something new we tried.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, we'd love feedback on that. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, mm-hmm.
1: But I guess what I didn't mention is the whole second day of FOSDEM. So on the oh, second yeah. day, I actually did the the Sunday at FOSDEM. We went there, and there was uh, the BSD developer room. Uh, so there was talks from all the different BSDs, including some of the smaller ones like Edge BSD and Electro BSD. Mm. Um, and it was just great to have developers from all the projects in the room and so mm-hmm, on. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the people that don't always make it all the way over to uh, Canada and so on for BSD yeah, camp. Oh, for sure, right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it was quite good. Um, and then uh, I gave a talk. Uh, oh, how did that go? I was, uh, originally, uh, I was on the schedule, but then... The there was a miscommunication about the ending time, and so the room had to be we had to be finished with the room by five o'clock instead of six o'clock. So they had to Whoa. cut a talk. Oh, and so they cut mine. Oh, but then somebody canceled, so they stuck mine back in. <laughs> oh, jeez, on and off, on and off. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but anyway, so I I only submitted it to the dev room when it didn't get accepted by the main track at Fosdem. Huh. uh although you know the main track at Fosdem is is. Uh, you know, a giant stadium, basically. Yeah. <laughs> like it's, it's, like a, a
0: keynote room, almost?
1: Yeah, is it, basically it is a keynote room, mm-hmm. and it's meant to hold a couple thousand people, so mm-hmm. I don't know that my ZFS talk would have filled that properly. <laughs> <clears throat> but for the BSD dev room, it overflowed the room, and they had to stop allowing more people in. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Did you uh, happen to get video of it? They were taking video, but there might, may or may not have been problems with the audio. I don't know yet. Man, that was a huge uh, issue of scale. Know, the live stream were complaining about audio. Yeah, Scales Audio had a horrible buzz and just crackles oh, well, and pops. This one I think was just a dead battery and no replacement battery or something because battery
0: pack's not... If we had more pack. time, I'd love for JB to go in there and just say, let us handle the live streaming. We, we'd send it off to Scale Engine. we get down there with a mixer and you know, we, we could do the whole thing for him in one package.
1: Yeah. Uh, you know, We'd love for you to come do that to BSD Can. Uh, <laughs> I know. The problem with BSD Can is that there are three concurrent talks at every time yeah. on the schedule. Yeah, yeah. you'd so almost you'd have to have three like a... teams of people. You'd have to have a totally
0: dedicated them. live page where people could choose their track, right? Don't you think? Right,
1: well, so, so uh, there's, we have that on you know, BSD can's uh, website. Hmm. It's just a matter of you need three sets of everything, right? You need three cameras with operators. Oh, yeah. And, oh, yeah. and three yep. encoders and mixers and all mm-hmm. this stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, although you can use, you know... But there's only one mic. It, you don't really need a mixer necessarily. That or you make the hard choice of which one is live. Yeah. Uh, so for for the presentations, it's not so bad usually because it's just a speaker talking for 45 minutes or whatever. Although if you try to do the working groups at like uh, the Dev Summit, the two days before can actually officially starts, um, then you're looking at... You know, with a working group, then you need like an active camera person that's like panning. Yes, and, yes, you would. Yes, and you obviously, would. doing audio is very difficult because yes. you'd have to have, you'd have forty to have... people in the room and they're yeah. not all mic'd up.
0: You'd have to have a runner with a mic, basically,
1: or something. And yeah. and you don't want to break the flow of conversation by making everybody wait for the runner with the mic. And one of the things we did
0: uh, before is we just had people. We had like three mics set up, and if, when you wanted to ask a question, you just got up and walked up to the mic.
1: Yeah. Uh, although in a working group, it's not necessarily. Yeah. You know, sometimes it is like that, but yeah. sometimes it's more, Yep. let's have a conversation of the 20 of us actually tossing out ideas and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So that's down the road, future stuff. So it sounds like your talk went pretty good, then. It was pretty popular, yep.
0: pretty busy. That's nice. That's
1: nice. Uh, I would love to be able to make it to Fosdom. Personally, I feel it wasn't as good as the version I gave at VBSDCon of the same talk, mm. but I don't know if the room noticed.
0: Well, yeah. yeah they, <laughs> they don't know, right? <laughs> They don't know, so they just like it, whatever they get. Uh, cool, Alan. Well, it's good to hear a report. I was, I knew, I could tell it was a good conference by some of the names I saw going and and some of the reports I saw coming out, and some of the, I even saw some projects launched from there. So,
1: yeah, there was a lot of interesting stuff going on.
0: Yeah. All right. So speaking of interesting stuff, OpenSSL has another exploit. I thought this wasn't a big deal.
1: I don't know what's going on, Alan. Tell me about this. Inform me of the situation, sir. Right. So uh, this is. January 28th or so it came out. Uh, they give us a couple days heads up telling us it was coming but not what it was. Yeah. Um, so they have their official library here but they released uh, OpenSSL version 102F and 101R to fix these. Uh, the first issue actually only affected 102, not 101. Uh, it was called the DH small subgroups uh, and is classified as high severity. And they say uh, historically OpenSSL... Uh, usually only ever generated Diffie-Hellman parameters based on safe prime numbers. Uh, more recently, in version 102, support was added for generating x9.42-style parameter files, uh, such as those required by RFC 5114. Uh, the primes used in such files may not be safe. So mm. uh, if you provide OpenSSL with an input file telling it how to generate the key, it does exactly what it says and could end up doing something... Less good uh, the primes used in such files may not be safe uh, where an application is using DH configured with parameters based on primes that are not safe an attacker could use uh, this fact to find the peer's private uh, Diffie Helmet exponent mm. and then they could possibly decrypt the traffic. they say uh, OpenSSL provides the option SSL op single DH use for ephemeral uh, DH or DHE uh, in TLS um, it is not on by default Uh, If the option is not set, uh, then the server reuses the same private DH exponent uh, for the life of the server process and will be vulnerable to this attack. So they have some mitigation for it, but it's not on by default in the old versions. Okay. Uh, It is believed that many popular applications do set this option and would therefore not be at risk. But they don't list which applications so that people could actually figure out how many actually do and which ones don't and so on. It
0: would be hard to make a full list too, maybe.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely not a full list, but if they're talking about popular applications, it's like, well, is Apache vulnerable or not? This is kind of a big deal. <laughs> yes, that would be a good one. You know, some of those, some okay. big ones. <laughs> uh, they say uh, OpenSSL 101 is not affected by the CVE because it doesn't have the new feature that caused the problem. Uh, then there's a second issue with uh, SSL v2 doesn't block disabled ciphers. Uh, and this is classified as low severity but might actually be worse than that. Uh, so they say, a malicious client can negotiate SSL v2 ciphers uh, that have been disabled on the server and uh, complete an SSL v2 handshake even if all SSL v2 ciphers have been disabled, uh, provided that the SSL v2 protocol has not been disabled by setting SSL op no SSL v2. So if your server disables all the SSL v2 ciphers, you know how you... Uh, if you follow that guide from Mozilla that we've talked about before mm-hmm. you you basically disable all the ciphers you don't want to use. So even if you disable all the ones that are valid in SSLv2, if you don't have a separate line that uh, dictates which versions of the protocol you can use that has uh, SSLv2 off, then the user could still negotiate that. Mm-hmm. Uh, now while that, you know, is well if the user is being malicious and is going to negotiate bad encryption, what's the big deal? Uh, The bigger problem is a man in the middle might be able to trick the client into downgrading. Right, and then they're using weak encryption that's breakable. Sounds very likely. Uh Uh, And the third issue is actually just an update to the old logjam thing. Uh, So uh, if you're using uh, too short of a Diffie hellman parameter, then... You know, you could get the, the logjam attack that we talked about before. So in when that was fixed back in uh, OpenSSL 102B or 101N, uh, they basically set the... Uh, OpenSSL wouldn't accept any connection if the DH parameters were less than 768 bits. Uh, but as of this update, they increased uh, the limit. So you have to be at least 1024 or higher uh, So basically, they slowly phased in this change to give people enough time to Hmm. uh, update things. Hmm. Uh, And then lastly, they just have a reminder here that uh, OpenSSL version 101 will stop being supported on December 31st of 2016, and that obviously... uh, OpenSSL version 098 and 100 uh, ended support December 31st of 2015, so are already out of support and will no longer receive security updates. So, you know, if you're still using those versions, you should definitely watch out. Do you know if uh,
0: things like boring SSL uh, are affected by this too? Is like, are the forks also? I don't also- know about
1: boring in particular. Um, for the v 2 thing, Libre SSL I'm pretty sure is not affected because they completely ripped out all the SSL V2 code, so it's just not even possible. Uh although I, and I because of when uh Libre SSL forked, they're still based on one oh one, I think. And so the feature that caused the this the top one there, uh the DH small groups, hmm. that feature never made it into Libre SSL to yeah. meet the problem. Uh and so it turns out that the Two of the three don't apply, and the third SSL, one isn't really yeah. a problem. It's just SSL announcing as part of this update. We also uh, have been ratcheting up the uh, huh. the security requirements for Diffie Hellman.
0: I'm looking. I was trying to see if I could find something. It looks like something from a couple of months back that boring SSL was working on this. I don't know. This is. It's what. So uh, you you said you said something early at the beginning of this that I thought was kind of interesting. There was sort of the word went out that something was coming. Um, yes. What do you suppose the advantage is, really, if you don't know when it's coming and what it's what exactly is it's coming, what exactly is the advantage there?
1: Well, if they tell you that OpenSSL will release advisory on next Thursday morning, you can at least schedule your system is to be ready to do that and maybe announce a maintenance period to restart your system. I mean, surface. I I, yep. I agree
0: that's the idea, but who who – what large, at least at scale, who's actually going to say – on well, blind faith, I'm just going to schedule a patch to be installed with no idea what the patch actually is before the announcement. Like That doesn't seem like something people would actually do. Do you think? Um, you know, if, if it's... I suppose m- maybe... I don't know. I just find it to be interesting. It's I, I like it. I'm glad they're doing it. I just when I think about it in
1: practice, I wonder what we actually accomplish. Well, if and what if you're really the big places like Amazon, then you're paying the OpenSSL Foundation, and you get details. the yeah, details in yeah, the yeah. That's a good point. That is a good point.
0: Um, I guess what I because the point I was just getting at is really what always ends up being the problem here is even though all of these announcements come out, I'm, 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 and I'm, I specifically feel this way about OpenSSL, we know from past experience people don't patch, people don't update. And it feels like OpenSSL is one of those things that gets neglected. So hopefully with that communication and and some of the recent attention it's gotten, people actually will install their patches. Alan, I don't think we've mentioned uh, at the top of the show for a while, but you can watch the TechSnap program live. You can go over to jblive.tv where we have a live chat room. We stream live at 1 p.m. Pacific over at jblive.tv, which happens to be what
1: time, sir? Uh, 4 p.m. Eastern, which is 2100
0: UTC. Yeah, we'd love to have you guys join us. You can check it out, too, in your own time zone at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. And then you can interact with us during the show and during the breaks, because uh, the chat room was going on and kermutzing about uh, the fact that people won't update their OpenSSL. Alan, any other thoughts on this story? Uh, nope. Okay, well, we'll have links if you guys want to learn more in the show notes. I'll tell you about something else I'd like you to learn more about. That's our first sponsor, DigitalOcean.com. Go over there and use our promo code SNAPOcean and get a $10 credit for DigitalOcean. This is a great place to spin up a server that's super fast because they use all SSDs. They give you a really fast CPU, 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, a terabyte of transfer starting at $5 a month. And when you use the promo code SNAPOCEAN, you get a $10 credit. You can go spin up a rig in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, Toronto, London, Germany. Uh, They also have really the best interface out there. And I think this is sort of the secret sauce that helped DigitalOcean break through. And it's what got my attention, because now I can go spin up a system right away when I need it. And the pricing structure is such that I do that. Uh, I'm going to be building a project for this week's episode of the Linux Action Show on Sunday. And uh, it's without question. The place I'll go to do that is on DigitalOcean. I can get started in less than a minute. If you use the promo code SNAPOcean, you get a $10 credit. They have a bunch of one-click applications, and because what I am going to be trying is pretty much written to run on Ubuntu, I'm not even going to worry about it. I'll just do an Ubuntu 14.04 LTS one-click deployment with NGINX already set up. They use Doku on the back end to deliver the software. Everything is just regular old vanilla open source. It's not like some custom patched version that has to be configured by the DigitalOcean control panel, and if you modify the config, everything's ruined. It's, it's just the standard stuff they're deploying using open source software. They have a great infrastructure. I really want you to check it out. They have some super great tutorials. We've talked about Let's Encrypt on the show. They have, they have a really great doc they published on my birthday about how to secure Nginx with Let's Encrypt on CentOS because you can run CentOS, you run Debian, Ubuntu, FreeBSD, CoreOS, Fedora, others over at DigitalOcean.com. Just check them out and use the promo code SNAPOcean. It's a really great service. It's my on-demand Linux infrastructure, DigitalOcean.com. Promo code SNAPOCEAN. and a big thanks to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program. I've been spinning up rigs all the times. All the times, Alan, all the times. Okay, so now we move over to somebody that uh, we love to talk about from time to time, Mr. Brian, uh, Brian Krebs, who's been tweeting about soda machines today, <laughs> <laughs> if you follow him on Twitter. But a very cool, probably the coolest soda fridge machine well, we've ever seen. But that uh, yes. was. But that's, that's not actually what, totally we're, not what this is. No, about. that's not what we're talking about. Al, what are we talking about from Mr. Krebs?
1: Right. Uh, so you know, in the past we've talked quite a bit about the security company Norse. Uh, you know, the oh, famous yeah. for that fancy map they have and so on. Yeah, that cool live map. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, we also mentioned a little bit, uh, in the beginning of the year there that they laid off about thirty percent of their staff. Yeah, yeah. And uh, there's been a bit of an exodus going on for a while. I know, uh, like three of the people I know that work there have had left before this. Uh, But uh, in addition to, uh, you know, all the headlines that had made and the uh, unexpected laying off 30% of their staff, uh, last week, uh, Norse's CEO, Sam Glines, uh, was asked to step down by the board of directors. Oh, yikes. Sources say the company's investors have told employees that they can show up for work on Monday. This is this week's Monday. Uh, But there's no guarantee that they will get paid if they do so. (laughs) Oh, no. Yeah. Uh, Glines had originally agreed to an interview earlier, uh, in January, uh, with Krebs, but later canceled, uh, that engagement without an explanation. (laughs) So something's been cooking. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, two sources at Norse said the company's assets will be merged with the networking firm SolarFlare, uh, which has many of the same investors and, uh, investment from the same, uh, like VC companies as Norse, uh. Neither Norse nor Solar Flare would comment on the story. Mm. And then Krebs has an update from um, Monday uh, that's saying that Solar Flare CEO uh, Russell Stern uh, replied, talked to Krebs and said that there's currently no transaction between Norse and Solar Flare. So that hasn't happened yet, and maybe it won't. It's hard to say. Uh, but Krebs goes on to point out that uh, a careful review of previous ventures launched by the company's founders uh, reveal a pattern of failed businesses, reverse merger shell companies, and uh, product promises that missed the mark by miles. Uh, so it turns out the people that started Norse and run it have uh, basically a long history stemming back to 1998 of uh, starting up companies to with you know these crazy product claims and then never actually materializing. Uh, and Also, some of them, uh, from what I've heard, uh, claim credit for other people's work and and so on. Uh, They say, In the tech-heavy, geek-speak world of cybersecurity, infographics and other eye candy are king because they promise to make complicated and boring subjects accessible and sexy. And, you know, Norse's much-vaunted interactive attack map is indeed some serious eye candy. It purports to track the source and destination of countless internet attacks in near real time and shows what appears to be a multicolored fireballs so continuously arcing across the globe. They say uh, several departing and senior Norse employees said the company's attack data was certainly voluminous enough to build a business upon, but not especially sophisticated or uncommon. But most of these uh, interviewed said Norse's top leadership didn't appear to be interested interested In or capable of uh, building a strong product based on this data. More worryingly, those same people said that there are serious questions about the validity of the data that informs the company's core product.
0: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, like the questions we raised the first time we talked about it on the show. (laughs) Uh,
1: Yeah, but it turns out it's even worse than that. Oh, really? Uh, You know, back then we kind of assumed it was you know, right? Every one of these attacks is could be a port scan or whatever, and that's a thing. Uh, Yeah, Uh, but it's more that we were kind of assuming good faith and that these people were actually trying to build this product. Whereas what the history of these particular people seems to suggest is that they start up these companies to get lots of investor money and then make it disappear and then never actually build the product. Right? <sighs> so does that, uh, mean,
0: does that mean this attack map's going to go away eventually? Because this is a real treat.
1: Well, most of their website went away at one point, so I don't know. <laughs> hmm. It's hard to say, um, but we'll get more into the questions about the data as we keep going through this article. Okay. But to say, uh, Norse's uh, fundamental technology arose from the ashes of several companies that appear to have been launched and then acquired by shell companies owned by those same top executives. Uh, principally, huh. the company's founder and chief technology officer, Tommy Steinen or Steinson. Uh, and say so this acquisition process, known as a reverse merger or reverse takeover, involves the acquisition of a public company, uh, the, you know, the, something like Norse, mm-hmm. uh, by a private company so that the private company can bypass the lengthy and complex process of actually going public in the first place. Right. So if you're a private company, you can just buy the public company and then use it. And, and, uh, and then you don't have to do the whole IPO thing or whatever. Right. And since
0: you're a private company, there's all kinds of stuff that doesn't apply to you.
1: Uh, And more importantly, as part of it, you don't have to end up disclosing who is running this private company. Uh, They say, reverse mergers are completely legal, but they can be abused to hide the investors in a company and to conceal certain liabilities of the acquired company. So you can hide the fact that the company you're buying has a whole bunch of debt or something, or pending lawsuits. So in uh, 2011, the uh, US SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission that Uh runs regulate stock markets mm-hmm. uh, issued a bulletin cautioning investors about plunking down investments in reverse mergers warning that can be prone to fraud and other abuse which would seem to be the case here as we learn more about the story <laughs> uh the founders of norse corp got their start in 1998 when they uh started a company called psycho c-y-c-o oh, i love net. it yeah uh, According to the press release, Psycho was a New Mexico-based firm uh, established to develop a network of cyber companies. <laughs> now, remember, 1998, so this is the different meaning of cyber. Right? Oh, you think? No,
0: I mean, not, that... not, not,
1: not the porn meaning, but no. you know, the original meaning of cyber, right? Because this is oh. 1998 we're yeah. talking about. Okay. Okay. Uh, on. Then, then they went on to say, "This site is a light-hearted destination that will be like the People Magazine of the internet." Oh, because you know, People Magazine makes like a billion dollars a year or something for Time Warner. I'm like, no, but magazines don't make any money anymore. But maybe in 1998, it seemed like a good idea. I oh yeah. Know. By uh, 2003, Psycho.Net acquired Orion Security Services, a company founded by uh, Steinson, uh, who's Norse's current CTO. And hmm. founded by one of Norse's executives who's actually from Norway. Uh, Orion was billed as a firm that provides secure computer network management solutions as well as video surveillance systems via satellite. Ooh. Satellites are expensive. Yes. Uh, especially in 1990 or 2003. Uh, despite claims that Psycho was poised to rocket into the deepest reaches or riches of uh, cyberspace, it somehow fell short of its destination and ended up selling cigarettes online instead. Wow. Uh, and perhaps, by the way, <laughs> their their uh,
0: their uh, current CTO, there is now, or the CTO, he's the guy that ran that, is now the Norse CTO. So when sure. they acquired them, they basically kept him, and now he's part of the company as the CTO. So
1: he, yeah, they, they acquired him in 2003 as part of their little yeah. group of schemes. And we're not even, we're still like five steps before. So we started back in 1998 with Psycho. Okay. okay. And we were still about five steps before they start Norse. Okay. There's, there's a whole shell game of companies still to come. Interesting. Uh, so, yes, yeah, So, Psycho.net, instead of being People Magazine of the internet, became uh, a way to buy cigarettes online. Huh. Perhaps inevitably, the company soon found itself the target of lawsuits from several states, including Washington State, uh, Attorney Hey-o. General, accusing the company of selling tobacco products to minors, mm-hmm. failing to report cigarette sales and taxes, and falsely advertising cigarettes as tax-free. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in 2005, uh, Psycho.net changed its name to Nexicon, uh, <laughs> but only after acquiring uh, via a stock swap, uh, another creation of uh, Steinson, the guy that's now the CTO, um, called Pluto Communications, which was a company that he started in 2002 and whose stated mission was to provide operational billing solutions for telecom networks. So middleware uh, software just to sell to the telcos. Something like that. Uh, and so they issued a press release uh, charting a course for the company that would have uh, almost no bearing to what it actually ended up doing. So in June 2008, Sam Glines, who's the CEO of Norse today, that just got fired, uh, joined Nexicon and was later promoted to the chief operating officer, so COO. By that time, Nexicon had morphed itself into an online copyright cop, oh, marketing geez. a technology they claimed would uh, help detect and stop illegal file sharing. <laughs> but never actually materialized. Uh, the company's Get Amnesty technology sent users a pop-up notice explaining that they, it was expensive to sue users and even more expensive for the user to get sued. Recipients of these notices were advised to just click the button and pay a small fee instead. Uh, in 2008... <laughs> Thank Nexicon God that didn't a- take off. <laughs> yeah, well, no, it did. Uh, so in, oh, it did? In November of 2008, Nexicom was acquired by Privium, another shell company operated by the same people. Uh, by you know, Steinson and Nexicon's principals. Nexicon would then go on to sign YouTube.com and several other ent- entertainment studios as customers for their uh, copyright protection technology. Wow. But soon enough, reports began rolling in of rampant false positives. Internet users receiving threatening legal notices from Nexicon when they weren't illegally sharing files and weren't actually doing anything. Nexicon uh, Privium's business uh, began to dry up and its stock price plummeted. Then in 2011, the SEC revoked the company's ability to trade its penny stock, uh, traded its NXCO, uh, noting that the company had failed to file any of the periodic reports required by the SEC since its inception. Then in June of 2012, the SEC also revoked Privium's ability to trade its stock, citing the same compliance failures. (laughs) Uh, By the time the SEC had revoked Nexicon's trading ability, the company's founders had already reinvented themselves yet again. And in August of 2011, they raised $50,000 in seed money from Capital Innovators to jumpstart Norse. A year later, Norse would get $3.5 million in debt refinancing. And by December of 2013, it got a $10 million infusion from Oak Investment Partners. And then in September of 2005, got another $11.4 million uh, from KPMG. Uh, And so, you know, it's they must All have had some sales web guys. of companies,
0: like yeah, and and then like apparently like pivoting at every like little market
1: opportunity in technology, they think they see. And changing so, the name so that they people don't notice it's the same people. Norse just
0: becomes the next t- attempt to capitalize
1: now on the whole cyber threat thing. Yeah. So basically, they seem to come up with a, a showy enough version of the product they can market it. And not necessarily to sell it to any customers, but just to get investors. And once they get the money, then they basically start a new company over here. As the old one eventually dries up because it turns out they've never actually built a product. uh, Then their little shell company they just started will then buy the old company. (laughs) And just keep doing this to get rid of the debt and to, yeah. Yeah. Pretty crazy.
0: So it seems like uh, it seems like this could be an example of something that's happening
1: broader in the industry too, potentially. Yeah, you definitely, especially with startups and so on, you got to look and see if they actually have yep. a, a minimum viable product. You know, I've, I've, had, I've seen this happen before. Um, there was a company that was trying to hire, uh, actually me and Stefan, and uh, we just w- were like, well, we can consult for you for money. And they're like, no, no, we want to hire you. It's like, well, we don't really want to do that. We have scaling <laughs> Uh, this was, Scale Engine 1 was big back then, but still. But basically they were doing um, what I guess is now Vine. Uh, they were trying to do something like that. So oh. like short 30 minute video, or 30 second video clips as tweets, mm-hmm. but not related to Twitter. It was going to be their own website, right? So they were basically trying to start a video Twitter back before anybody else had done that. But basically they had gotten a little bit of money and they were going to use that to hire an all-star team of people which hmm. they were once they had that they would then be able to get more investment money uh-huh in order to make a visually pleasing presentation of the start of a product uh-huh so that they could then have it be acquired and just fire everybody right so they basically they never actually planned to build anything just to hire a bunch of people to get a team together to get more money to get interest to basically sell it to Twitter or somebody for a whole bunch of money without ever av- actually building anything.
0: Oh, sorry, Alan. There's an attack on Washington right now, according to the Norse yes. map. I might be uh, might be losing you here
1: in a minute. I'm, I'm sure the person that made this map has played the game DEFCON. Yeah. Have you played the game DEFCON? I've seen it. I've never played yeah, it, so. but I've seen it. It's quite fun to play. I want but it's exactly th- this, basically. It makes the- me totally here's. doubt this whole sensor network. It makes me think it's probably totally bogus. Well, We're about to get into that part of it now. All right. So they say uh, several former employees say that uh, Steinson's penchant for creating shell companies actually served him well when building Norse's global sensor network. Ah. Some of the sensors are in countries where US assets are heavily monitored, such as China. And so by going through the shell company... China didn't know it was American or reporting data back to America. Huh. Uh, those same insiders say Norse's network of shell companies also helped the company gain visibility into attack traffic in countries where it's forbidden for U.S. firms to do business, such as Iran and Syria. Boy, that so really they got their demonstrates that, there. That
0: clearly demonstrates they were they knew exactly how they were manipulating that comp- those company arrangements, and taking advantage of it to benefit their current uh, endeavor. Like that. If that doesn't like brilliantly illustrate how well they well, clearly knew what they were doing. Well, this is actually showing
1: they actually had sensors. Which, yeah, it does. It know, does that show map, that. You, yeah, You wouldn't have thought so. But the sensors uh, getting data of what? Exactly. Uh, so by 2014, former employees say Norse's system was collecting a whopping 140 terabytes a day of internet attack traffic. Wow. Okay. Or sorry, they say terabytes of internet attack and traffic data. So maybe they were just capturing all the traffic.
0: Oh, there was a big attack on the uh, now. There's a cloud around Washington. A
1: cloud. Yep. Yep. Uh, Norse's senior data scientist says she wasn't actually given access to all the data until the fall of 2015, seven months after being hired as Norse's chief data scientist. So I don't know what she did for the first 12 or first uh, seven months. Uh, At that time when she got a chance to dig into it, she was disappointed. The information appeared to be little more than what one might glean from web server logs, uh. albeit millions of them from around the world. <laughs> so their appliance just basically pretends to be everything, an industrial control system, a web server, and so on, and logs everything that comes in. And so it picks up on all these scans and malware and so on, but it picks up on so much stuff, it's very hard to filter it down to something useful. These could just be bot attacks. Yeah, well, they are. the idea with the sensor network was to find the bot attacks that were different than the ones everybody else was seeing, mm. right? It's, it's to find the new zero day before we actually figure out what happened, right? So normally what would happen is somebody actually come up with a zero day for Windows. Uh, they would start using it. And only once somebody's machine got broken into or crashed or whatever, and they investigated and figured out how would we know what the zero day was. Uh, whereas the idea with Norse was you you would capture this data ahead of time, figure out what it was. Hey, this is the new attack. Write some rules and block it at the edge of your network before it ever got in. It does tell us some interesting things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for you
0: audio listeners, if you go to map.norsecorp.com, that's n o r s e corp.com, uh, you know it tells you some interesting things. Things like a lot of data of this attack data or is coming from China, and a lot of it is targeted at port four four three. Uh, and a lot of its destination is the United States. That's actually, wow, sure, I, just saw, I, just that's, saw, that's... I just
1: saw Linwood, Washington go by. That's, <laughs> uh, wow, <laughs> that's
0: pretty close to where well, I'm at. You have
1: to remember, it's just GeoIP data, so it's not very specific. Like, your, your, yours probably wasn't going to say Marysville or something. It's going to say wherever Comcast's headquarters in the area is. Well, no, they have li- on this live attack data stream down here. The
0: target was in Linwood, Washington. It says
1: right, but it's just because that's where the IP address is registered. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: not that that's know, actually where it was. Yeah. No, I'm it's, just saying. I just was, It's funny to see close things go by. Like there's a here's a a lot of a lot of the target stuff is like countries and, and states. There's another Linwood
1: right but, there. There's there's something up there in some weird. You see the giant globe that isn't Washington. Mm-hmm. Like where is that? That's not quite. It's on the Canadian border, but on the U.S. side. It's not New York or Chicago. It's I don't know, but it's getting blitzed out right now. Yeah. Yeah, it's
0: a pretty good map, I'm going to admit. <laughs> this, is a, this is a good toy. <laughs> uh,
1: well, they, sp- they spent a lot of JavaScript and... Uh, and, and, uh, and you know, JS if they really have appliances all over the world, that's at least something. Right. So they say, uh, the data isn't great. It's pretty much what you would see if you looked at a web server log that had uh, automated crawlers and scanning tools hitting it constantly. But if you know how to look at it and bring in a bunch of third-party data and tools, th- the data is not without its actual merits. Uh, if it was, if nothing more than just the amount of data they would have at once. Mm. Uh, so the data scientists and other current and former Norse employees say very few people at the company were permitted to see how Norse collected its sensor data. And that Norse's founder, Steinsen, jealously guarded access to the back-end systems uh, that gathered the information. Because it seemed like, you know, they told everybody, it's, oh, we have this super secret sauce to get all this attack data, you know, and we'll find the new zero days before they come out. Except for all it was doing was, you know, it's like a Python app that pretends to be a web server and a, <laughs> and a, a Scada system and a bunch of other things and then logs everything that gets done to it. Um, you know, there's no secret sauce. It's all smoke and mirrors. Uh, then uh, with the latest round of layoffs, if uh, Tommy Stinson got hit by a bus tomorrow, I don't think there would be a single person at the company left who understood how the whole thing works. Because, uh, you know, that's the best way to keep anybody from figuring out that it's a fraud, right? Hmm. Uh, then uh, Stuart McClure, who's uh, president and founder of the cybersecurity c- firm Silance. Uh, said he found out just how reluctant uh, Steinson was to share Norse data when he visited Steinson and the company's office in Northern California in late 2014. Uh, McClure said he was there to discuss collaborating with Norse for two upcoming reports. One was examining Iran's uh, cyber warfare capabilities. The other one, if you remember, was talking about the uh, cyber attack on Sony. Mm. Remember with mm-hmm. Sony at the end of 2014 there? Mm-hmm. Is that really that long ago now? Yeah. <laughs> Yep. So, you know, the FBI had already attributed the attack to North Korean hackers, mm-hmm. but McClure was intrigued after Norse uh, confidentially shared data and said that they had reached a vastly different conclusion. They, when, if you remember, Norse was posting on their blog, and I think maybe they even went on CNN saying that uh, their data suggested the attack on Sony was the work of a disgruntled former employee. Uh, was that Norse that started that? Yes, and so, silence was like, oh, well, here, let's work together, and I'll, I'll let me look at your data, and, w- and we can actually prove the government's wrong. So, does that mean it leads credence to the fact that it might have been actually North Korea? It just means that North's data was suspect. I don't know that it actually means it was North Korea.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Because nobody's ever showed us any data that proves it was North Korea either. Right. <laughs> and the fact that there was a lot of, like, hard-coded uh, paths, UNC, f- you know, file paths in the code would yeah. seem to indicate people had a pretty good knowledge of the way the internal file system worked. Well of course you can get that by just
1: having a yes. system with right. a worm or something. Right. But yeah.
0: Like our maybe our uh, next story, for example.
1: But yeah. 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 So the McClure said he recalls listening to Steinson ramble on for hours about Norse's suspicions and simultaneously dodging direct questions about how he had reached those conclusions that the Sony attack was an inside job. It just came, uh, it kept going back to them and saying, Tommy, show me the data. Uh, We wanted to work with them, but when they wouldn't or couldn't produce any data or facts to substantiate their work, uh, we couldn't proceed. And so they, uh, Silence ended up doing the report by themselves based on their own data. Uh, Conversely, Norse's take on Iran's cyber capabilities uh, was trounced by critics as a deeply biased headline grabbing report. (laughs) <laughs> it's like, hmm, if you want to sell your appliance, that seems like exactly what you want to do. Uh, it came near the height of the international negotiations over lifting nuclear sanctions against Iran, and Norse was teamed up with the American Enterprise Institute, a conservative think tank that was uh, traditionally taking a hard line against threats or potential threats to the U.S. In its reports, Norse said uh, that it saw half a million attacks on industrial control systems by Iran in the previous 24 months, a 115% increase in attacks. Uh, But in a scathing analysis of Norse's findings, uh, critical infrastructure uh, security expert Robert M. Lee said Norse's claim uh, of industrial control systems being attacked and implying it was uh, definitely by Iranian government was uh, disingenuous at best. Lee said he obtained an advanced copy of an earlier version of the report that was shared with unclassified government and private industry channels and said the data in the report did not uh, support that conclusion. So Norse is... If, you're, if I'm
0: tracking you, is literally screwing with geopolitics to make headlines. Because if you release a report right as these negotiations are coming to their conclusion that Iran has doubled up or tripled up or quadrupled up their cyber attacks, whatever that is, and it's not actually a true report, that's tampering with some pretty delicate stuff.
1: If the government believes it, they really shouldn't, but they did.
0: Right. right. Uh, so it gives crypto- fodder, though, to, uh, yeah. to conservative politicians
1: or, and pundits who were, who were pushing against the deal. Yeah. So uh, apparently what the problem is, is that the Norse appliance pretends to be a SCADA system and then they were counting every time somebody scanned it or touched it. And so if you have this appliance and it sits out there's a honeypot and it pretends to be every industrial control system, well, if one bad guy in a with a scanner and he just scans the whole internet once a day is going to hit you every day. And so you're going to count that as 365 attacks instead of well, and it also sounds one. like you're attributing it to the whole of Iran when it could just be anybody. Yes. Any IP address that maybe geolocates to Iran, you're automatically assuming it's the government. And mm-hmm. so, mm-hmm. Uh, so Krebs on Security interviewed almost a dozen current and former employees at Norse, as well as several outside investors who said they were uh, considering buying the firm. Uh, none uh, except for Lama would speak on the record. Uh, most said Norse's data, the core of its offering, was solid if prematurely marketed as a way to help banks and others detect and def- uh, deflect cyber attacks. Hmm. So the worst part is that Norse, with different management and you know using the team of really good people they actually had, had actually built the system that they promised, and you know. Not marketed it until they had finished it, which probably would take another year from now or more, uh, could have actually been a good thing, you know. But now, even if somebody built the product, nobody would believe them because Norse is tainted the water with their fakery, right? <laughs> yeah. So it says uh, the problem seems to be that top executives at the company were more interested in getting investments based on their attack map and the marketing of it than actually building the product. So you know they were just. Make it look good, get a bunch of money by either uh, getting the more and more investments or selling it to somebody, and then take your money and run. Mm -hmm. Uh, The the data scientist here says, uh, or uh, sorry, a different former employee says, I think uh, they just went to market with this a couple of years too soon. Uh, This employee left uh, prior to the January layoffs as part uh, because of concerns they had about the validity of the data that the company was using to justify some of its public threat reports. It wasn't all there, and I was worried that there uh, were findings that they uh, they were finding what they wanted in the data instead of what was actually there. If you think about the network uh, they built, that's a lot of power. Uh, After being fired, some former employees started uh, doing a bit more digging into the people behind the company and say, I realized that, oh crap, I think this is a scam. <laughs> They're trying to draw this out and <laughs> tap into whatever buzzword de jour there is. Yep. And there are products that are going to meet that and suck in new investors. Mm. Uh, hmm. These shell companies f- formed by the company's founders, built investors. Had anyone gone and investigated any of these partnerships uh, that were espousing as being the next big thing, they would have realized it was all smoke and mirrors. But yeah, uh, if you want to know more about it, go read the whole Krebs thing. But uh, when this blew up, uh, actually during the Dev Summit uh, at uh, FOSDEM, one of the people uh, at the Dev Summit was, you know, he had uh, worked with the Norwegian guy that eventually ended up in Norse previously in like the, the 2000s. Really?
0: So he had um...
1: he's He'd gotten screwed over and uh, also had the guy claim work that this developer had done was his. Uh and so he had been warning people not to go work for Norse, but not everybody listened because Norse was, it looked really cool and they were offering lots of money. But yeah. And they have a really Turns cool attack out. map. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, if you're the JavaScript developer that wrote that attack map, you have a future. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. You are. Uh, but really,
1: the worst part is that while Norse turned out to all be fake, they did hire a lot of really good people, which has two problems. A, eh? those people got sucked out of other jobs and yeah. now there's going to be this glut of, people trying to find jobs, uh, and and the fact that a real product like this uh, stands a lo- has a lot more friction against it now than it would good if point. Norse had just That's never... That's a really good point.
0: Yeah.
1: It's just really sad, because Norse could have... The, the product was a good idea.
0: And it sounds like, uh, in some, some just ways... It never they, actually executed. They even screwed with geopolitics a little bit. So, you know,
1: not a great company. Not, it was a well, of... <laughs> we didn't end up going to war with Iran. No, we, no. lifted the sanctions, so luckily somebody ignored the report, but... Um, well, any other thoughts on that? It's a fascinating freaking
0: story, especially yeah. about one that was, uh, it's worked its way into some of the stories we've covered in the past.
1: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I will miss Norse's blog. They had a lot of good stuff on there, because they hired someone that could write to write about the things that happened. Although yeah. now, some of their findings, I'm not so sure about. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I guess that's a, that's a problem. But maybe those, you
0: know, those people go on. They'll continue on. They all have, they all have futures. Let me tell you about something else that has a future. That's IX systems, especially powered mm-hmm. by those Intel processors, my friend. iXsystems.com Systems.com slash TechNet the landing page to go to. Check out these IX rigs that are built and powered by open source, really for any kind of solution or workload that uh, you might want to consider. I tell you what, Alan, if I if I was in the uh, state, if I was if I was boy, I don't know, even like Three years ago, where I was still getting calls and recommendations, this would be what I would recommend to all of my clients. Not only because I know they're going to get a great buying experience, but also for the long-term white glove support and service. And, sir, I would like to remind everybody that many scale engine systems run on iX hardware. You haven't got any new rigs recently, have you,
1: Alan? They make Um, me jelly. It should ship tomorrow or early next week. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, It's not to make you jealous, though. It's just, you know... Uh, an E3, uh, like huh. 1275 V5, oh. so it's it's you know just a quad core uh-huh. processor, not a big deal. Quad core uh, Xeon processor, Alan. Yes, uh, oh. right. But so basically, it's pretty much equivalent to an i7. Okay, uh, but it has ECC RAM. Oh, the big thing is it's it's the Xeon 1275 instead of the 1270. What makes a difference there is means it has the built-in GPU. Like you would get in, you know, like an i oh, three.
0: Oh, so it's got like a what, like what's like an iris or something like that.
1: Yeah, it's like the iris, like the P five thirty or something like that. Cool, pattern. some GPU, which means and encoding we that for video transcoding. Very nice. Well, we're hoping to. Uh, we've tested it and had it work with Ivy Bridge, and as well, I think as well. And this is yes. So here's
0: the, well, and here's the best part, though. I mean, Well, really, this if, is the V5, so it's Skylake. Yeah, even if it doesn't, wow, these are Skylakes already? So even if it doesn't yes. work, though, you're still going to have a kick-butt CPU that you can yes. throw the workload on, so yes.
1: it's not really, it's not a loss, totally. So right. I suppose uh, not a lot of storage in these ones? Uh, no, that one's like two one-terabyte hard drives mirrored. Yeah. And, and then, actually, so when they ship oh, it, it to you. it have two small SSDs mirrored as well for, uh, because one of the other features we're rolling out of Scale Engine mm. is DVR being able to rewind the live stream by about twenty minutes? Like the JB live stream. So if people make it a little late to the tech snap start, they could Yeah. Or if they're like, what did Alan just say? Rewind a minute? Um that requires the origin to keep that buffer. The video ready. And so yes, yeah, so we'll buffer that onto SSDs for
0: Wow, that's really cool. Um so when you get this these rigs from IX, uh are they already loaded with FreeBSD? Like what's the state that they're in? Since you you have well,
1: them shipped directly to the data centers, right? Right, well, it, you have all these options for that. Yeah, I can say, "Hey, don't do anything to it," or I can say, "Hey, install FreeBSD and tweak it this way." Uh, to the point where, when you get this worksheet when you set it up, and it's like, "Which BIOS settings?" You know, it's like, "Oh, right, ASNI is off by default in almost every BIOS, but on your server, you definitely want that on. It'll speed up your SSH and stuff." And it's like, uh, you know, most times you want hyper threading on, but certain workloads hyper threading actually makes it slightly slower. Mm-hmm. So you can have them turn hyper threading off. And, you know, set this password for the management system, give it this IP address, put the management system in this VLAN, and get it all set up exactly right. Uh, And then, yeah, I have them ship it directly to a data center where the data center guy just puts it in the rack, plugs in the right, the Ethernet cables into the right ports, Mm -hmm. and that's it. It's online and it goes.
0: That's pretty neat. And, of course, they do burn-in testing before they ship it. So you have a great, great, great shot of it working just fine once it hits the rack, and that's really nice. Uh, so I encourage you to go check it out. Go to IX Systems, let them know that the Tech Snap show sent you. And by the way, I mentioned scale at the top of the show and uh, they have a scale recap posted yes, up on uh, their blog. They were there. Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, yeah, you were showing the video at the on the live stream earlier. Hey, look at those two guys.
0: Yeah, that's I know those. Where did you get those goofuses? I don't know. And look, they got those horns on their heads. Who are those? Yep, Where's those guys. That's uh, Noah with his uh, Groff was even there. Do you see that? I do. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. And there's Drew with Groff. That's cool. Yep. uh Very nice. Yeah, you know, Noah. By the way, he he grabbed himself a PCBSD CD, but then realized that none of his machines have a CD-ROM anymore. <laughs> 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 so he's like, I can't install this. What do I do with this? <laughs> yeah. But that's pretty cool. Uh, it
1: turns out CDs are still cheaper to produce than uh, USB. Oh, yeah, for
0: sure. Yeah, of course they of course
1: are. You can't always download PCBSD from the website, yeah. now. Yeah, he knows.
0: Ixsystems.com I, gonna, slash like, TechSnap.
1: i have to do something. I if you find something that Noah likes to download and hijack his internet connection and make everything he downloads just be the PCBSD. That device. would be awesome. Uh, and also, if you end up talking to him or something like that, let him know the
0: TechSnap show sent you. We yes. appreciate that. Too. Mm-hmm. Okay, Alan, hot potato, hot potato. What the hell is hot potato? It's like three delicious things that are mashed up and then rebaked into a new
1: Windows exploit. <laughs>
0: yes. <laughs> that sounds <Yeah>. delicious.
1: <laughs> so, uh, Fox Glove Security has uh, the news on this new Windows exploit called Hot Potato, which is a way to do Windows privilege escalation. Uh, and it's pretty crazy. So, Hot Potato, aka the potato, Uh, Takes advantage of known issues in Windows to gain local privilege escalation uh, in default configurations. Namely, uses NTLM relay, or specifically HTTP to SMB relay, and then NBNS snooping, or spoofing. Uh, So if you remember, we talked about this a while ago, where you can have a website do a redirect that redirects somebody to a Samba share. Yeah. uh, And, you know, how that should... It's mostly a problem of the fact that Internet Explorer is like integrated into Windows. Everything, yeah, (laughs) yeah. Uh, You can when it does that, it doesn't do some of the verification it's supposed to do or something. Anyway, Uh, so they say if this sounds vaguely familiar, uh, familiar, it's because a similar technique was disclosed by the Google Project Zero guys a while ago. Okay, and we talked about it then. In fact, uh, this is some of the code used in this exploit is shamelessly borrowed from the proof of concept from Google. Uh, but what these guys have done is they basically combine that with a couple other things to make a super exploit. Uh, using uh, this technique, they can elevate their privilege on a Windows workstation from the lowest level, hmm. so just a regular user with no access, to NT authority slash system, which is the highest level of privilege you can have. Yeah, It's higher than, you know, super administrator. Uh this is important because many organizations, unfortunately, rely on Windows account privileges to protect their corporate network. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so they say this is a perfect for island hopping techniques that they frequently yeah. talk about. Um, I agree that we frequently talk about, really, because yeah.
0: if we've talked about it in the past. Like, you start in, you get at one spot that's a low-value target. Somebody clicks on an email with, like, a, a link in or something like that. And then once you get a, an establishment on their machine, you can connect to another device and jump from there. And if you could do something like this, that's going to make that island hopping thing
1: happen a lot faster. Yep, uh, The techniques that this exploit uses to gain privilege escalation aren't new, But the way they're combined is Microsoft is aware of all of these issues for some time, some of them going back as early as the year 2000. uh, But they are unfortunately hard to fix without breaking backwards compatibility and that fact has been leveraged by attackers for the last 15 years. Uh, But this exploit consists of three main parts, uh, all of which are somewhat configurable through command line switches. Oh, how lovely. So part one is uh, the local uh, NetBIOS name lookup spoofer. Yeah. if we can know ahead of time which host name a target machine, in this case 127.0.0.1, uh, uh, will be sending an NBNS query for, we can craft a fake response and flood the target with the response very quickly since it's UDP, so that as soon as they send the request, when they're expecting the response, they get our fake response instead of the real one. So you, you, they
0: know that the machine's going to do a lookup for local host, and since they know that's coming, they preemptively
1: flood it. Yeah, they've just flood the guy that's going to look it up with the, with the bad answer so that as soon as he makes the request and is looking for an answer, it gets a fake answer before a real answer can arrive. Uh, 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 ah, yeah, yeah, right, of course. Uh, one complication is that the two-byte field in the NBNS packet, the transaction ID, uh, must match in the request and response because since UDP is stateless, it has to be able to match up the right request with the right response. Uh-huh. But since it's only two bytes, there's only 65,536 possible values, you just spam really hard and (laughs) send one one packet with each transaction ID until it works. That's doable. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, because the space isn't big enough. Uh, They say, uh, what if the network you're targeting has a DNS record for the host you want to spoof? Uh, You can use a technique called UDP port exhaustion to force all DNS lookups on the system to fail. Basically, oh. by taking every port number, the DNS client can't find a free port number to make its request. Uh, so All if, we do is... So then what yeah. happens? If it, so if, so it, can't even, it can't even send out a request because you've exhausted exactly. Okay. Because there's only 65,000 ports on your system. If we make our malicious program bind to every single one, when you go to do a DNS lookup, you have to bind to a port to receive the answer on... And you can't because all of them are taken. Is This so this would seem DNS like a fails. problem that
0: would affect pretty much
1: every OS every then. System, yes. yeah. This is why normally you restrict how many each user can have. So oh, yeah. I've never really thought about doing that. Yeah. Makes sense though. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so it causes DNS to fail because there's no uh, UDP source port for the request. And then once DNS fails, the NBNS will be used as a fallback in Windows. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, normally you don't use NetBIOS to look up a, an internet address, but if DNS isn't working, you give it a try just because. Mm-hmm. So then part two is a uh, fake WPAD proxy server. So in Windows, Internet Explorer by default will automatically try to detect network proxy configurations. Yes, settings. Yeah, we've seen that. Uh, this also surprisingly applies to some Windows services like Windows Update, ah. but exactly how and under what conditions seems to be dependent on the version of Windows. Okay. With the ability to spoof NBNS responses, we can uh, target our NBNS spoofer on 127.0.0.1. We flood the target machine, which in this case is the machine we're standing on, with the response packets uh, for WPAD or WPAD.domain.tld and we say that the IP address is 127.0.0.1. Mm -hmm. At the same time, we run an HTTP server locally on 127.0.0.1 configured with response uh, that the Internet Explorer is going to be looking for, the configuration for the proxy. Yeah. Uh, this will cause all HTTP traffic on the target to be proxied through the server we just set up. Mm-hmm. So now we can <laughs> not only sniff, stoop on it, but do other things.
0: Now you've got a proxy, so I is just happily sending everything, like including your Windows including update request. Up yeah.
1: <laughs> and then part three, you use the HTTP to SMB NTLM relay. Ah. So now that every request to the website whether it's Windows... If it's just, you know, Explorer or if it's Windows Update, uh, it's going through your proxy, you can now just insert random redirects. So, uh, NTLM relay is well-known and an often misunderstood attack against Windows NTLM authentication. The NTLM protocol is vulnerable to man-in-the-middle attacks. If the attacker can trick a user into trying to authenticate using NTLM on their machine, uh, they can relay that authentication attempt to another machine. So, if I get your machine to try to authenticate. I can capture that and then sp- use that the response to trick a different machine into trying to authenticate. Uh-huh. And then I can capture their authentication packet and then use it somewhere else. Right? So I trick you into trying to authenticate, capture your response and then use that somewhere else so I can log in as you. Mm-hmm. Insidious. Uh, So Microsoft patched this by uh, disallowing same protocol NTLM authentication uh, using a challenge that is already in flight. Oh, okay. Uh, What this means is that SMB to SMB NTLM relay uh, from one host back to itself no longer works. However, cross protocol attacks like HTTP to SMB will still work with no issues. So, because Microsoft couldn't really fix the base issue, they put in a mitigation, but the mitigation only applied to Samba to Samba, not mm. HTTP to Samba. Right, of course, uh, of course. Yeah, with all HTTP traffic now presumably flowing through an HTTP server that we control, uh, we can do things like redirect them uh, somewhere that will request NTLM authentication. So, in the hot potato exploit, all HTTP requests are redirected to a th- with a 302 redirect to localhost slash get hashes x's and some random stuff, where x is the unique identifier, and then uh, that responds with a 401 request for NTLM authentication. Then any uh, credentials that are relayed to the local SMB listener to create a new system service that runs whatever commands we want. Right. and then when the HTTP request in question originates from a highly privileged account, for example, when it's a request by Windows Update, the command will run as the NT Authority slash system privilege, which is the administrator. Yep. And then Windows 7 can be fairly reliably exploited by using the Windows Defender update mechanism as well. Once mm. uh, uh, Windows Server doesn't come with Defender, you need an alternative method. Instead, you can use Windows Update, which is harder, but still works. Uh, In the newest version of Windows, it appears that Windows Update may no longer respect the proxy settings in your Internet Options and Internet Explorer uh, or bother checking for WPAD. Instead, proxy settings for Windows Updates are controlled using the netsh winhttp proxy command. Okay. Instead of these... uh, for these versions we rely on a newer feature of Windows, the automatic updater of untrusted certificates. So something else is going out over HTTP basically. Yes, and it's going to follow the and run with the privileges and, and so you, you know what Windows the URL update, is that it's fetching. So So they fixed Windows update to be less exploitable in this case, but they added some new service <laughs> that has the same problem. Yeah, as long as you know where it's going so you can uh, you can spoof it. That's great. They say, it's unclear whether this attack could work when SMB signing is enabled. Mm. The exploit is uh, released currently does not, but that might be just because the exploit isn't smart enough yet, uh, and there's no SMB signing in the sys library they used in the exploit. Uh, So uh, enabling SMB signing works around this temporarily, uh, but that's just until somebody builds a better exploit. So this is something,
0: some of the parts of this track back to 2000.
1: All the way back. and uh, uh, Bad design decisions in Windows NT. And so
0: it's, it's an interesting way. It is it's, a, it's a, it is complex once you break it all down, but it's also in some ways obvious once you look at it, too. Right. Like, it's like taking
1: some things we already knew about yeah. and then applying port exhaustion to fail the DNS and force it to do something that, you know, NBNS is something that Windows 95 did for when you didn't have a dns server on your lan like right? yep. if you just had a couple of computers networked together yeah it's not something you know you might not in, have even been using in mean, a real active directory network you have to have right. a dns server yes. so you're never going to use nbns right so if we didn't have nbns that wouldn't be part of it mm-hmm. and you know if if Which probably you could disable stable. that you know you could disable it i think so but so, that would be you know, mitigation dig you'd have to dig into every machine and rip out the M- netbios stuff <laughs> Yeah, it's not awesome. It's not awesome, Al. Yeah. Hot potato. (laughs) Uh, All right. Any other thoughts on that story? Uh, No, it's just the the big thing is that we're going to continue to see these because all people have to do is figure out how Microsoft works around the problem (laughs) and work around the workaround in the exploit (laughs) because it's not really possible to solve the problem of a design decision that was made. Twenty years ago.
0: No, and what's brilliant about this one is, uh, it it allows you to go after the low hanging fruit. You know that 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 low end user only workstation that is probably been written off as even a security risk because ah there's no there's nothing they can do on that machine. They don't have access to anything, and so it's it's beautiful because it it helps take advantage of of that sort of soft spot as well. All right, well, I'll tell you about something else that's hot. It's not just hot potato, hot ting. That's right. Go to techsnap.ting.com and check out my mobile service provider. No contract, no early termination fee, and you only pay for what you use. It's a flat $6 for the line, and then it's just your usage on top of that. Your minutes, your megabytes, and your messages. They add all that up, and that's what you pay. Uh, You can check it out right now, techsnap.ting.com, and you'll get a $25 credit. If you already have a device, and you might have a compatible device, uh, you're set. If you don't have a device... Then that twenty-five dollar credit could be applied to your first phone. Uh, For example, there are all kinds of devices Sting has, from from the uh, you know just like base feature phone, all the way up to like the really high-end Cadillac uh, iPhones and and Android phones. But in reality, most of us just need a great phone, and it'd be really great if it could get as close to the Google experience as possible, have frequent updates, and last a while, and be built well. Friends, I introduce you to the Moto G 3rd Gen. When you go to techsnap.ting.com, they'll take it from $193 down to $168. It ships tomorrow if you buy it. it includes the SIM, no contract, and you only pay for what you use. And you support the TechSnap program. TechSnap.ting.com. Go check that out, won't you? techsnap.ting.com, and let them know that we sent you if you call them. That also helps. Uh, And also, you can visit their blog. Check out their blog. They've got the Super Bowl uh, for cord cutters, ways to watch the Super Bowl even after you've cut the cord. Mm. Yeah, that's kind of handy. And also, you could also try their savings calculator. Plug in what your current rates are and see how they stack up to Ting. See how much you might save. You'd be pretty surprised. techsnap.ting.com. And a big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Mr. Jude, I heard a rumor that there's a new BSD Now program out there. Is that the truth? Is there a new BSD Now episode? Uh, yep. Every week, what are you talking about? I know. I'm As just, if
1: there was a question. I'm giving you a setup. I'm giving you a setup. Ah. Mm-hmm.
0: So what did you tell me I about I
1: missed it. Uh, so we talked uh, with uh, Willem Terup, uh from the NLNet Labs on about uh, GetDNS, which is a new DNS resolver library uh, that's designed to be easier for people that are writing applications. Currently, all the DNS resolving stuff that's built into operating systems and so on is really focused on DNS, not on, my application would like to, you know, use some DNS. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's, uh, they have it versions of it in like every programming language. You can get it like C or Python or Ruby or Perl or PHP or whatever you want. Um, and... The big thing is that in the old way, we looked up domain names and so on in programs. You did, you know, get host by name. So you give it the website name, and it gives you back sure. one IP address. Yeah. Well, sometimes the website actually returns more than one IP address, but because you only you got your answer through the operating system, uh, you didn't get all that information. And so one of the things it has is roadblock avoidance mode. So when it tries to do DNSSEC, if something along the chain is breaking it. It can fall back to actually doing the request itself and figuring it out for you, and uh, it can also do stuff like you know, if DNSSEC is being a problem, the application gets to decide what to do instead of just getting back the DNS didn't resolve, and so you get uh-huh. more uh, better errors and the option in a browser to say, oh well, let's pop up something like the you know the SSL certificate error warning thing, and let the user decide what to do That's instead nice. of. Cool. And lots of cool stuff, and we talk about uh, other stuff like LDNS, uh, Unbound, uh, Net uh, DNS from Pearl, other stuff he's worked on, and I cool bet stuff. there's some more FOSDEM stories in there too. Uh, yep, yeah. some recap of uh, what happened at FOSDEM, cool. and uh, lots of other news, including the FreeBSD quarterly status report, uh, which was the longest one ever of all the cool stuff that happened in FreeBSD in the last quarter of last year. Check it out, BSD Now One A lot of it is uh, you know, work that will be finished in time for 10, 3, or 11, and uh, lots of cool stuff going on there. That is fancy,
0: fancy, fancy, fancy. Great work uh, from the BSD Now crew, as always. And uh, you guys can go get the HD version of that, so that way when this show wraps up, it'll be ready for you. Because we're about the midway point in the TechSnap program, so it'll be a good chance yep. to start uh, your next Alan Jude uh, marathon. And uh, mm-hmm. you can find it at jupiterbroadcasting.com. But with the news all done, it's just time for the TechSnap Feedback. Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or popping that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website. Or maybe, like a ninja, starting a thread at techsnap.reddit.com. Alan, our first email this week comes in from a geeky guy. Uh, and he writes, Hello, Alan and Chris. I'm an aspiring systems administrator and I'm starting to build a home lab to learn on my own time in addition to alongside classes I'm taking. So he's go- he's really going all in. Mm-hmm. I've been starting, I've been setting up and testing uh, visualizations on my desktop, but I'm looking to get some older, refurbished server-grade equipment—probably meant virtualizations—to try more things out that I can keep up all the time. So the advice i would received thus far is to look on eBay for equipment such as Dell PowerEdge 1950s or 2950s, marked as free shipping that accept best offers, and still my recommendations for 24 or 48 gigabit Cisco switches that can be managed via console port. Uh, in addition to this, I'm looking to get a pfSense box so I can get used to setting up that. And I have a solid firewall to keep my home and have a solid firewall to keep my home and lab behind. I want to eventually have a mini FreeNAS to also get some experience with that and ZFS. I plan to try all different kinds of operating systems: Windows servers, Linux servers, and of course FreeBSD. I would like to hear your recommendations on what I should get as well as where I should get it. My budget for the next few months is about $600 and probably another thousand a few months after that. Thanks for the info you have time to provide. Sincerely. A geeky guy. So setting up a home lab.
1: Yeah, um, I don't know what those Dells go for, but definitely you want to look at the age of the CPU because you know anything too old and you're wasting electricity by turning it on.
0: <laughs> yeah, and especially if you want to play with virtualization.
1: Yeah, it won't basically they won't have the hardware virtualizations in the old CPUs. So uh once you figure out what CPU it has, if you go to ark.intel.com, ark.intel.com, you can look up the CPU and see what features it has. And if it doesn't have you know, extended page tables and the virtualization stuff, you don't want it. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as equipment, um, in addition to eBay, there's unixsurplus.com, hmm. which I've got some stuff from. It's not bad. Uh, they have things like um, a super micro machine with two Xeon l 5420s. All right. So that's dual quad core 2.5 gigahertz, 16 gigs of RAM, the hard drive caddies, no hard drives included, and a single power supply and the rail kit for $299. Uh, And things like that. So, you know, based on which generation of hardware you want, the prices change. I always prefer at least X8 or better hardware Mm. because that's got all the features we use nowadays. Uh, But they even have, you know, X9 stuff at this point.
0: I also would uh, I mean this is not a this is not necessarily a plug for DigitalOcean, but I also would consider if you when you want to just learn yeah. the software, a
1: lot cheaper than buying hardware.
0: You could just set up some VPSs and uh, or droplets on DigitalOcean and play with the software. I'm not saying that is an, a replacement for hardware hands- on, but you will you will definitely only get so far with really old hardware, so definitely do that. And I would I, if I were you, I would focus more on the switches and that hardware, spend your money there. And when you yeah. want to learn software and management, maybe consider VPSs. But Really,
1: for for even the switches and routers, you know, the Cisco simulation software will yeah. let you build a network with like five routers and ten switches or whatever in virtualization. In, in, in not virtualization, even it's it's a simulator. But mm-hmm. uh, I, I've you know, if you can get some Cisco hardware very cheap on eBay or whatever, sure. But I wouldn't want to spend you know a thousand dollars on a couple of old Cisco switches because they're not useful <laughs> and they're
0: loud and they're yeah. hot and after yeah. a year or two after you've gotten past this stage they're going to be a pain in your butt that's been my experience but you know what I also <laughs> just ask Ann there's someone in our closet uh, at her house that she does not like um, yeah. but good luck I, I think it's a great endeavor either way all right, so Micah writes in with ZFS on Western Digital Green Drive questions. Many thanks for the show and awesome to meet Chris at scale this year. Hopefully we'll see you again next year and they'll get the reservations right, which was funny. They totally messed up our reservation. I thought it was going to be for 20 Meanwhile, we had like 65 people there. It was, it was, yeah. He says, I have a pair of Western Digital Green Drives in storage, uh, in a storage server, that I maintain here at work, currently running Extended 4. I'd like to convert them to ZFS. But the interest seems to greatly, uh, the internet seems to greatly disagree about whether or not to run ZFS on these drives or not. I was hoping Alan could weigh in on the possible drawbacks about ZFS on these Western Digital Green drives. The main reason really seems to be that the drives have TLER enabled. Thanks,
1: Micah. I'm guessing he means that TLER isn't there. But TLER, or time-limited error recovery, just means that if the drive does have a problem, it will eventually give up instead of retrying forever, which is a good thing. So I'm pretty, sure, I'm pretty sure the green drives don't have that. You have to buy NAS drives to get that feature. I wonder. Uh, but so you can use green drives. It's not going to not work. Just green drives are slower than the regular drives like the blues and the reds and so on. So if I was buying drives to do ZFS, I would buy better drives like the NAS ones. The reds. But if I the had the greens laying around, the, no reason not to use so them really. my Googling
0: right now says that the greens do not have it. Yes, I'm quite sure that they do not. It says the Reds have it and the Greens do not. Yes, that would it's, assume because Reds are meant for, NAS. for
1: it's a it's a file server feature. The Greens yeah. are meant for saving power in in desktops that don't use their hard drives very much.
0: So and is this so a problem? The though? Greens
1: are the Greens are slower because they have slower RPM mm-hmm. and so they have fewer IOPS and fewer and less bandwidth. Right. So they'll be slow, but they're not going to not work. And the lack of TLR just means that. You know, when there is a problem, the drive retires internally a lot more and doesn't give up after 30 seconds or whatever. So yeah. it can cause the system to perform really badly when a drive is failing. But in that case, the solution is replace the failing drive, not have TLER. It actually looks like, depending on the
0: age of the green drive, there is a trick via firmware to turn it on. It's just disabled um. via firmware. The newer green drives, you can't do that, it looks like, from ah. the thread I'm reading.
1: So i am yes, well, I wouldn't go doing, messing around with that anyway. no.
0: No, that's just a good excuse to replace the green drive
1: when it, when it uh, starts to have Also, yes, the uh, chat room points out that the green and, I don't know, maybe black drives uh, have a warranty that doesn't co- cover you if you run them 24-7.
0: Which is crap, because I run my computers 24-7, my desktops. Yes,
1: yes but those drives specifically, yep. the cheaper drives, yep. are designed for an eight-hour duty cycle, where it's on for the eight hours while you're at the office and then off overnight. Yes. Yes. Uh, And so they're only guaranteed to last the number of years they say on the box if you use them like that. If Mm -hmm. you run them 24-7, they'll say, sorry, the drive, you've ran it for more than this many hours, which puts it outside of the warranty. Which is why they market the reds for uh, these workloads. That's why they can sell you the same drive with a different color on the label and charge you more money for it. It's
0: wonderful. Mm-hmm. All right, we got a question on storage arrangement coming in from Francis. He says, Hello, Alan and Chris. As a part of the working poor, I don't have a very fast growing storage needs, but that also means I don't usually get to buy disks that are identical. Most of the time, their sizes can be orders of magnitude apart based on what is on sale. The last time I bought a hard drive, I got. Uh, one four terabyte drive off the off of a Black Friday sale, and then I got a, another one point five terabyte drive before that one, and another five hundred gigabyte drive before that. Even if I ended up with the disks that are the same size, they might be different brands, platter arrangements, cache sizes, or even revisions. So here's my question: How would you guys arrange the storage under this kind of restriction? How much of a problem would it be if I use disks about the same size but different brand and arrangements in a multi-volume setting?
1: Thanks right. In so, in if you're looking at ZFS or whatever, uh, it drives being different brands and so on is not a big deal. If they're very different performance, it means that you, you know, when you mirror drives, you get the worst performance out of the pair. So, if you mirror, you know, a nice slow green with a nice fast red, then they're both going to perform like the green. But in general, it'll be okay. Uh, so, with mixed sizes, uh, pair them. Up in the best reasonable way you can and you'll get the size uh, or the capacity of the smallest drive so you know put the 500 gig and the 1.5 terabyte together oh, okay. or, or sorry the 4 terabyte and the 1.5 together and the okay. 5 and some other thing together and you'll get the smallest out of those Yeah. then as you can afford replace say the 1.5 terabyte drive with the second 4 and now that part of the mirror will expand to use all 4 terabytes or maybe only three if you can only get a three. And then maybe you replace, use that leftover 1.5 now to replace the smallest disk out of your 500 gig and say one gig, or 500 gig and, f- and one terabyte drive. You replace the 500 with 1.5, and now you have a three and a four together giving you three, and a one and a 1.5 together giving you one. So now you have five terabytes of usable space kind of thing. You know, there are things like the Drobo will try to get more, eke the last little bit of space out of that, but. Do you want that little bit of space at the sacrifice of the security of your data?
0: <laughs> of having Probably to use a, At the sacrifice of having to use a Drobo. <laughs> well,
1: I just that, but there's, you know, there's always a chance that it's going to lose your data because it doesn't work right. And so, you yeah, know, I'd biggest, rather have less space. I think the biggest thing you need to keep in mind when you're going
0: to use a Drobo is if the enclosure has an issue, your solution is to buy another
1: enclosure, right? So that's... A... And hope you can get an identical one that will be compatible. Mm-hmm. Whereas with ZFS, if... The OS dies, you replace it. You know, you you need another OS that that supports it. On FreeBSD, Alumo, SmartOS, uh, Linux, Mac, whatever. GNU slash Linux, all of those. Not not GNU slash Linux, only regular Linux. The GNU Uh, one doesn't like the CDDL.
0: So, Alan, there was a question that came into the show that was like, oh, come on, everybody knows the answer to this. And I thought, well, I've never... I've never really heard an official stance, so maybe we'll we'll ask Alan. Uh, So it comes in, compiling ports as root. Uh, Hello, I recently signed up for a DigitalOcean droplet, and I'm having a blast. I made a free BSD droplet, and now i got a question for Alan. Would you say that compiling ports as root is a bad practice? In general, I've heard nothing but compiling as root is bad, but I'm wondering. Also, what do you think of Portmaster for managing ports? Is that a safe solution? Thanks.
1: Uh, Right. So... Uh, you know, it's better to not, but it doesn't end up making that big of a difference. I, for example, compile my ports using Poudre, Uh so it does each port in its own separate jail that doesn't have access to the internet. It does downloading in one phase and compiling in another phase, so the compile phase doesn't have access to the internet there at all. There must be some stage where it needs root privilege to write to some spots of the file system, right? The install phase requires root. But yes, you can do all the compiling as not root, yeah. and it's better. That is safer, but, right? It doesn't make that big of a difference. And if yeah. you're really worried about it, do the compiling in a jail. And, you know, Poudrier will do that for you, or you can do it manually. How's that spelled? Uh, uh It's spelled in French. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I was like, it sounds like a... Well, all right. Uh, that... I, 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 I couldn't think of the spelling. I had to type it, which I have in my finger. memory. So it's P-O-U-D-R-I-E-R-E. Okay. <laughs> and it's the French word for powder keg or magazine, where you keep all the explosives.
0: Oh, that's brilliant. I love it. That makes Uh, a lot of sense.
1: The old build
0: system was called Tinderbox,
1: which is basically the same thing. So So. is this in place of something like Portmaster or just Portmaster? So Portmaster is just a script that compiles ports for you. Uh, It's mostly useful for updating ports. Uh, It works uh, although I've I've switched to Poudreire because it's nicer and faster. Hmm. And it does in the jail. Yeah, and it does each... well. The reason it's faster is it if you have to update ten ports, or if you have to update a hundred ports, it creates one jail for each CPU on your system and compiles one port in each one. That's awesome! Oh, that's uh, awesome! So it keeps all of the uh, all of your CPUs busy. So you whereas, can you can do multiple at a time, then essentially. Yes. Oh. Yeah. So it figures out the dependency stuff and does it. And so, like when the when the fiftieth port needs the second port as a dependency, it installs the package you've already compiled of it into the jail and does it. Uh, and it, it means that each one. It slick. avoids contamination because only the dependencies a program actually declares are installed in the jail when you compile it. So it doesn't accidentally link to some other app that maybe you installed. That's nice. uh, well, it's very nice for the package building because it means that programs that will, like, will use stuff from X if you have it but won't if you don't yeah. aren't undeclaredly pulling in bits of X yeah, because they happen to be available. Wow, that is
0: really nice, and, and that's got to be—you got to think that's going to be—that's got to be become a more popular way to do that on FreeBSD. That's well, yeah, well,
1: it. yeah, uh, it, it works very nice, and it can remember your settings better than Portmaster. But Portmaster does work and is officially supported. Wow, I can't believe testing. that it can build them all simultaneously in separate jails. Based on, that is so cool. Yeah, well, so they did it because uh, normally you you can do like make with minus j to use multiple CPUs to compile one program, but you know, there are parts where it doesn't do that, like when it's running the configure script and all this other stuff. So it turns out it's not that big of a, you know, it never is as good as having one jail for each CPU and trying to keep them all busy all the time.
0: So his core question, is Portmaster
1: safe? Yes, but it sounds yes. like there might be a better way to do it. But
0: it might be nicer. Yeah, wow, that is really cool. Makes me totally Linux jelly. Telling you, Alan.
1: Telling you, yeah. Alan. Well, the the FreeBSD Package Manager does work on Linux. Yeah, I think... Although there's- Poudrier doesn't because you don't have jails. But you could maybe use Linux jails to actually compile Linux. There's Python. an NVIDIA driver for FreeBSD, right? Yes, an official one released in lockstep with the Windows driver. Huh. Huh. hmm
0: <laughs> So anyways, we want your emails. TechSnap at com, Or go over to the contact page. Choose TechSnap from the dropdown or our subreddit. We got some more questions in there, but we'd like to get more. Uh, so all of them. Anything related to these topics we've covered on the show? Any questions you might have? You've heard, you've heard a sampling here and probably many others, if you listen to our feedback special last week. And we'd also kind of like to know what you think of that, if you want to let us know in the uh, subreddit comments or something like that, or on Twitter. You can tweet me, I'm at ChrisLAS, and he over there is at AlanJude. We'd like to know what you thought of the feedback special. It's not something we plan to do all the time, but uh, since Alan and I do want to try to attend more in-person events, uh, it is a great opportunity to, to sometimes feature stuff like that. So mm-hmm. we want to do it in a way that you guys like it, so when we have an episode like that, it's something you actually want to watch or listen to. So your feedback is important on that. Okay. With the feedback segment all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. The Roundup for stories that just didn't fit towards the top of the show, but we still want to talk about them and give you some links to follow on your own after the show. Some of these links came from our subreddit, TechSnap.reddit.com. Like this first one. I love this one. I love this one. So there was this big hype myth. we actually covered it for a couple of months at Unfilter about this ISIS encrypted messaging app, which turns out to be totally bogative. Uh, it turns out to be that it was actually like a uh, RSS reader app that they were showing screenshots of. And <laughs> not doesn't exist at all. Yep. It was a bogus kind of like a cyber company that even reported the story to begin with. Pretty interesting. Yep. Pretty Pretty bad. Pretty bad. Pretty bad. Uh, so yeah, there is no secret ISIS messaging app, despite what was reported since December, including or uh, it's a better secret than we thought. Uh, represent, Representative Michael McCall, the Homeland Security Department, went on the, the Wolf Blitzer program in December and talked about this and said it was, you know, a critical development in ISIS sophistication. And then turns out to be totally bogus.
1: And Boom. this is why they need to backdoor
0: our crypto. Right. Moving on, sysadmins dispense with passwords with a banana. Yes. A banana. There's a link
1: in there. You, should, you uh, I think it's the very first link. Yeah. Good, okay. It.
0: okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. Okay. So I see a banana going up to like uh, a device with an LCD screen on it. It looks like touch the like banana a pie, I
1: think in there somewhere. <laughs> yeah,
0: it looks like a banana pie or banana be.
1: pie, something like that. Anyway, if you walk up and touch the banana, a Wi-Fi code will be displayed on the screen, and then you can log into the Wi-Fi. Wow. This prevents people that aren't supposed to have the Wi-Fi from getting the Wi-Fi. Because they can't touch the banana. Yes. Well, it could have been any, I mean, but a banana. I, yes, it was just, the, um, you know, it's that haptic touch thing. <clears throat> and just you touching it completes the circuit. But. So we have heard of Facebook cooling their servers
0: in the snow Microsoft, though, has a whole other take. How about cooling your servers at the bottom of the sea? That's Microsoft's new way. Uh, the company says the students can be built more quickly than typical data centers. Look at that. They even put a stupid window logo on the side of that thing. They're sending down basically a tank, uh, a, an underwater data center running actual IT very equipment. small. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, they also have those crate data centers, too, as well. So yes. this is.
1: I, I was expecting like a waterproof shipping container being sunk.
0: Yeah, yeah. But I guess they can't have a lot of air in it because it would float. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know. You know. Here in the Pacific Northwest, we're just a little crazy. Look at that with Microsoft on the side there. That is okay, that's so funny. Not
1: quite as small as it originally. Was.
0: Yeah, it does look like it's decent size. There it goes. They sent it down. and It's cooling down there. They have a. This is a prototype. So instead of pumping water around the data center, the data center just is in the water. <laughs> that's what they say. They did it right off the off the Pacific coast here.
1: <laughs> yes, because you know what we need is to heat up the ocean more.
0: <laughs> right, yeah. It's like little heaters to put in the ocean. Just little heaters. But now, you know what? Well, we won't have to burn fossil fuels cooling them. So mm. you win some, you lose some.
1: Yeah, we just cool them naturally here in Canada. But oh. hmm. Tell me about Lost Pass. What's this? Uh, so this is a new fishing attack against Last Pass. Oh, boy. Uh, so they actually managed to... Uh, make something that would be very, very convincing as if this was your LastPass login dialogue. But Jeez, are these screenshots isn't. of it here? Yes. That looks identical.
0: Mm-hmm. I would fall for that. Yep. Huh.
1: But you should read more about it, especially if you use LastPass and okay. so on. Uh, I don't know if it's related, but I got an email from LastPass the other day that they're changing their logo and what the button looks like when you... Uh, giving you a heads up. Yeah. Huh. Well, that's good of them.
0: Hey, how about this? At least, uh, at least I'm hoping this is true. Grabs is reporting on it. You probably all heard it this week. The word is, is that Oracle is going to be spinning down the Java plugin. Of course, not too surprising since browsers have well, been... Yeah, browsers have been blocking it for a while now. And and like uh, Chrome is deprecating the uh, Netscape plugin API altogether.
1: Yeah. Um, so basically you will most things you use will still just work, especially like, say, the remote management thing on your Dell, because they use what's called Java Web Start, where in the browser what you do is you download a little shortcut file, Mm -hmm. and then Java runs that on your desktop instead of in the browser, which is better because it doesn't crash your browser when Java screws up. Uh, But basically, it's how we should have been doing it the whole time anyway for Java. Good point. So uh, if your boss Uh, comes to you... Because it runs as a separate application, and so it also means there's well usually now there's like four levels of prompt like it pops up a file you download and then you have to run that which you know you can figure so happens automatically or whatever but then it has you know two or three security warning things that pop up so you have plenty of time to block it so you're not gonna get drive by ads and so on so yes so you can tell you can tell your boss everything's gonna be okay you're not you're not all gonna
0: break um, also tell him to stop uh, trying to uh, save a bunch of money on
1: uh, cheap webcams spend a little more and get the nice webcams. <laughs> Uh, well, this one's not about the cheapness of the webcam, really. But uh, this, you know, I took a thirty-dollar D-Link webcam uh, and uh, tore it apart, and got access to the firmware, and figured out that it's you know embedded Linux, as you might expect, and then hack slash root, and now it's a yeah. Backstory it's just, into your now to
0: be clear, it's one of those Wi-Fi ones, so it's yes. like it's just a cheap Wi-Fi webcam. It's like it's you know bottom yes. of the barrel. and but it's
1: got a little embedded, overly old version of Linux in it, and. Uh, you can you know, repackage it, backdoor it, and now I have a way into your network.
0: And it runs Telnet? You've got to be kidding me.
1: Yep, Telnet and BusyBox. <laughs> uh, the main reason uh, is it turns out that all the libraries required by SSH make it kind of big. It doesn't fit on an 8-meg flashcard.
0: Ah, uh, well, there's that. All right, tell me about this Nest
1: story. It's a Nest
0: outage, ah. Alan.
1: Yes, so Nest, the fancy thermostats mm-hmm. for your home mm-hmm. used the cloud to do things and mm-hmm. store things and so on and they had a bit of an outage which resulted in people waking up in their houses being freezing
0: no the thing doesn't go into like some sort of local default mode
1: apparently not i don't know <laughs> read the
0: story <laughs> wow yeah go check it out but i don't have one of those wow no connectivity time
1: off dead battery wouldn't turn on wow ah yes it was uh the some software update that got pushed into it that maybe users didn't get asked if they wanted, and it killed the battery and then it died. <laughs> that's ah, pretty. So yes, yeah, if the battery dies, then the thing turns off and then you get no heat. Oh, that, that's no. Good. I'm glad mine doesn't use batteries. This is why you should live underground. I love these tunnels. The rise and the fall of the tunnel rat king. Look at this thing. Right. So this story is not mostly uh, mostly not about uh, what you would think? So, it's by uh, the Grug, who's a security research guy. We've talked about he's on Twitter a lot, uh, and he mostly is talking about the story of this uh, Mexican drug cartel mm. operator guy, in as lessons on how to do security properly, hmm. uh, and basically showing why this guy got caught because he failed to, you know, take security seriously. I like that. He yeah. did a bunch of things right and did a bunch of things really, really <laughs> bad, and that's how he got caught. Yeah. And so this breaks it all down and explains how – it starts off with, like, how much trouble the cops had getting him and how they eventually did get him and so on. Huh. I have recently heard about that, too, so it's kind of uh, – Yes. Uh, well, it turns out uh, doing a, an interview with uh, – who was it? Some famous celebrity. Um,
0: yeah. Oh, I did hear about this. Yes. I don't What's remember the name? names now, but now I know what you're talking about.
1: <clears throat> yeah. Anyway, the drug kingpin did an interview with yes. a celebrity because the celebrity is going to play him in a movie or something. And it resulted in him being in a place, uh, you know, the, having an appointment basically. So the government knew he was going to be here at this time or whatever. Yeah. Sean Penn. Uh, it was Sean Penn, yes. Yeah. And uh, basically they managed to uh, track him, follow him, and, and bust him. Something uh, Alan, the TechSnap
0: program always recommends you use extra protection, like LSA protection.
1: Yeah, so this is a local security authority thing for Windows, and basically it's a bunch of extra settings you can possibly turn on to lock down uh, the security of the Windows service. Uh, uh, local so security that it's, specifically? Uh, well, yeah. It's, well, LSA is just the name of the, the service that runs on the computer. Uh-huh. Uh, and this will possibly help uh, avoid rogue plugins and drivers and stuff. And, yeah.
0: Yeah, Yeah. it looks specifically like
1: it helps with stuff that
0: attaches to the kernel, which would be very good, very good. Yeah, so extra security lockdown stuff. Interesting. When a group of hackers sought to steal iTunes passwords from Apple customers in France, they didn't spam the entire country. They sent out just 5,000 emails to French-speaking targets containing links to fake login pages. Email spam Um, goes artisanal.
1: Yes, so uh, Talos, the Cisco security group, uh, identified this one, what they call snowshoe spam. (laughs) Uh, So it's not spear phishing, but it's not your regular bulk spam. It's spamming just small enough a group of people that you won't make enough noise to get on the blacklists.
0: So I guess if you're going to be really hyper targeted, you kind of have to make sure you got something that has good grammar. And proper sentence structure,
1: and well, you- partly yes, because you're you want your your higher hit rate ratio is going to make an yeah. improvement there yeah huh. interesting artisanal spam I like it. And What did he
0: call it again? What did you say?
1: Snowshoe. Snowshoe.
0: Okay. All right. Well, let me tell you about this casino right here. This is the this casino is suing a security firm for
1: failing to contain the malware infection. Now, how is that even reasonable? So, uh, Affinity Games hired Trustware Holdings to do their cybersecurity. And oh. then uh-huh. the cybersecurity firm failed to actually stop the malware from spreading in their network uh, like they were being paid to do. Womp womp. Uh, so, you know, it seems like they maybe had over-promised. Uh, if, who wins the lawsuit will de- mostly come down to exactly what the security company promised to do. I'll tell you what went wrong
0: is uh, Trustwave just didn't have the right disclaimer in their contract saying, "Hey, look, sometimes malware be crazy. We can't stop all infections. Antivirus Ah. isn't perfect." So, Mm -hmm.
1: but you know, if they promised more than anybody else in order to get the customers and didn't (laughs) deliver on it,
0: yeah, yeah. The last days of Target, the untold tale of Target's Canada Canada's difficult birth through life and their brutal death. Is Target not in Canada? Yes, yeah, so
1: Target came to Canada uh, and lasted about a year and a bit and then <laughs> failed. And... <laughs> didn't even know that. Yes. <laughs> I guess actually uh, I did. I know I think about it. I suppose I did. But <laughs> so, so they bought a store here, including all of its like 113 locations and turned them all into Targets and failed miserably. Uh, but if you actually go in and read the story, it turns out almost all of their problems were related to enterprise software. No the way, Really? The programs that they had to uh, track their inventory and take and deal with like shipping it between their different locations uh, was totally crap. And and they, so they they got sold a solution based on SAP. Yeah. And uh, they would get bogus data put in it, and like you know, it would have the wrong weight for something, and then they'd be like, "Oh, we can't ship it because the truck's too heavy now," or the wrong size. And it's like, well, it says that you should be able to fit a hundred of these on the shelf, and it doesn't. <laughs> And a bunch of things like that. Um, and also their, um, their uh, point of sale systems for like the self checkouts. Turned out those were all buggy and didn't work properly. And so nobody could pay for the stuff. Or worse, uh, people would go do the self checkout. It would look like it charged their credit card. But in the back end, it maybe it failed. And then people legitimately left the store having paid for stuff. But the store never got any money. Wow, Target owes its vendors three point four billion. They're in a tough spot now. After this, uh, so anyway, you should definitely check out the story if if you've ever uh, wanted to see how Oof. bad software can be implemented. Oof. Yeah, yikes, yikes. Hey, good news about
0: Windows ten.
1: It's embracing Silicon innovation. It kind of uh, basically, uh, you know, Skylake will be supported by Windows seven, but everything after that will only be supported by whatever's the newest version of Windows at the time. So if you want to use a newer processor, you're going to have to upgrade. So
0: what? What when they say Windows 10 is embracing silicon innovation? What they're really saying is we're
1: not supporting it on anything older.
0: But what specifically? What updates specific? So it's not like Windows 7 wouldn't work on Skylake Plus One.
1: What it really is is if you call in and ask for support, they're going to be oh sorry, we don't support you. Probably a bit of that, and obviously, it won't use any new features that of silicon. Uh, but I'm guessing, you know... That is a weasel way a to get hard. out of supporting Windows, though. Yeah.
0: It basically means that Windows 7 doesn't have the support life that
1: they actually say it does. Unless you buy old hardware. Yeah. Which then makes it more likely to be unreliable. Um, I don't know how this will apply to corporate usage because I can definitely see... If you're a big corporation, you're constantly buying more machines, but you'd like to have a cert- a stable certain version of Windows, right? um, But, well, Microsoft doesn't write drivers for most of this stuff, so I don't know if Microsoft wants to deal with backporting drivers, but, yeah, I don't know exactly what their motivation is, but something.
0: Look how they write this. Compared to Windows 7 PCs, Skylake, when combined with Windows 10, enables up to 30x better graphics and 3x battery life. They're comparing it to Windows 7 PCs. It's like they're...
1: Yes. So you now, did they mean Windows Seven on the same Skylake? Or no, I don't think what so. Was, what was new when you bought Windows Seven? I think that's what they're comparing what it, it to. Yes. Yeah. Uh,
0: Which is crap. Uh, I don't. This is really something. All right. Well, link in the show notes if you guys want to read more about it. Instead, Alan, can you tell me about secret SSH backdoors
1: in the Fortinet? Is that yes, you say? So Fortinet Pardon. is a uh, they make routers and mm. security appliances, kind of like a Cisco. Mm-hmm. And yes, if you thought Cisco's the only one with SSH backdoors. No,
0: no. If you said Juniper
1: out. was the only one with SSH backdoors, no.
0: An undocumented account with a hard-coded password came to light last week when attack code exploiting that backdoor was posted online. <laughs> Yay for hard-coded passwords and user accounts
1: built into At the firmware. At least when Juniper found it, they found it themselves yeah. uh, and didn't tell anybody until it was fixed. That's and true. this one, it was being actively exploited on the internet, and then they were like, oh,
0: sorry about that. Oof. Patches are out for certain devices. Uh, if you want to look quickly, but maybe we have not to all screen. of them.
1: Yeah, keep looking and fun times.
0: Oy, sorry to hear about that, users. Anyways, let's talk about uh, you know things that could cost you millions of dollars potentially, like backdoors in Bitcoin wallets. What's this right. one about?
1: Yes, yeah, so some Bitcoin trading website apparently just bought their wallet software from some guy, and he had a backdoor <laughs> in it where it made an IRC bot that he could just give commands, and he just made off with some five million dollars. guy is like, dollars. hey, yeah, lucky, lucky seven coin developer. Yeah, hmm. and he made off with what was it, like 13,000 Bitcoins, which was about $5 million. Uh, and a whole bunch of Litecoins as well, uh, like 300,000 Litecoins, and dumped them all on the market at once, causing the price of Litecoin to drop by like 80% or something like that. Amazing. That is great. The backdoor code uh, was posted on March 8th,
0: 2015.
1: Yes, so the, the site uh, Cryptsy puts out a uh, bounty of 1,000 Bitcoins for information leading to uh, finding the guy who did it. Which seems weird because it seems obvious that it's the developer of the software they used. but
0: Yeah, and I guess, yeah, and the code's been around for a while. So 1,000 Bitcoins, what's that in in, um, in in actual money right now? Do you know? And what's the Bitcoin? I'm, I'll go look at bitcoinaverage.com right now. I haven't checked it for a little while. Bitcoin average, uh, uh, 390 bucks right now is the, is the average.
1: Right. So, and so be that would be $400,000.
0: 538 uh, Canadian dollars. mm mm-hmm. Damn, that is a huge difference in, <laughs> holy yeah. crap.
1: Uh, wow. The dollar has actually been going back up the last couple of weeks, the hmm. last week anyway. Good. Uh, it was worth like, each US dollar was a $1.42 Canadian, now it's like $1.37. All
0: right, to uh, round up the round up, our last couple stories are fun ones. We have one yes. from Twitter. Uh, finally, a clear graphical explanation
1: of hashtag geek productivity patterns. And uh, this is looking legit here. Yeah, so the first one is, you know, the geeks being productive, uh, and then there's a five-minute interruption, so the productivity goes down, and then they pick back up, and it's fine. But really, this is what it would look like. Yeah, the, that is really great. Uh, we'll have a link
0: if you guys are listening, but it's, it shows the peaks at. Uh, I like noon. It uh, yeah, how non-gangs think it works drops way down. Of course, it just drops down a little bit, but then at two o'clock it almost drops off the map.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and then there's a giant spike that goes up at like eleven two morning.
0: Yeah, at eleven and uh, and at three and
1: yeah, that's pretty
0: cool. Okay, Alan, and then we have one more
1: here that. Uh, <laughs> that looks yeah, like...
0: Don't don't say what it is. Just show the picture. Okay, I revealing,
1: now. So you look at the picture, and it looks like oh, somebody just measured the uh, the amount of snow they got in the big snowstorm the other week in beer beer bottles. Yeah, and then there's something beside it, whatever. But then if you look very closely, you will see that that measuring thing there is measuring the snow in u's, as in rack units. <laughs> so they got uh, 15 u's of snow. <laughs> that should be a thing. 15 u's of snow. That should be a thing. Look at
0: that. That's a great way to do it. I like that it's a cold snap. Makes me think of tech Snap. I should have Cold Snap Sam Adams while we're doing TechSnap. Bring it all together. Sure. All right. So that was the roundup. You can submit to the roundup by going to techsnap.reddit.com um, and uh, post your pictures of beer in the snow. I don't know. <laughs> and uh, we'd love to have you join us live over at jblive.tv. Like we mentioned earlier, we do this show on Thursdays at 1 p.m. Pacific, which is.
1: Uh, 4 p.m. Eastern, 2100 UTC.
0: Yep, exactly. And don't forget, we have RSS feeds. You get the show automatically when a new episode comes out. So that way, you don't even have to worry about it if you just want to get it on demand. All right, everybody. Well, thank you so much for tuning this week's episode of TechSnap. And we'll see you right back here next week.